Well, as you're able, let's stand together for the reading of God's Word. We're in John chapter 6. We're looking at verses 1 to 35. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? And Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, and so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments, that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing, and when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. And then they were glad to take him into the boat. And immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there nor his disciples, They themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum, seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. And then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. This is God's word. Amen. You can be seated. Well, we all know what it feels like to be hungry. Perhaps some of you are hungry right now. The rumbling of your stomach, 
the pain that can come if you go too long without eating. We all know what it means to be naturally hungry. We also, if we're honest with ourselves, know there is another kind of hunger we have, a deeper hunger, a hunger for significance, for meaning, for transcendence, for glory, a hunger which, contrary to the ads, no Snickers bar can satisfy. Deep down, we're searching for genuine contentment, for true satisfaction, for real, substantial, non-fleeting joy. And despite our endless attempts to distract ourselves from this growling hunger in our hearts, perhaps by binging Netflix, ceaselessly scrolling social media, or the more traditional routes, drugs, alcohol, sex, Despite those attempts at distraction, when we pause, we know we're hungry. Deep down, we know. And this text is in the Bible to show us how to satisfy it. So interestingly, the, the feeding of the 5,000, this text that we just read out, it's the only miracle recorded in all four Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But John is the only gospel author to call it a sign. A sign. Notice verse 14. When the people saw the sign that he had done. Which raises an interesting question. Why call it a sign and not just a miracle? Why why a sign? See, signs by definition signify something. They direct, they guide, they point through themselves to something else. In other words, the sign does not exist for its own sake, but for the sake of that which it signifies. In that sense, a sign is more like a window than a painting, something you look through rather than at. To treat a window like a Rembrandt is to miss the point of a window, Likewise, to fixate on a sign without looking through it, beyond it, to that which it signifies is to miss the point of a sign. Well, right outside our main entrance here as you're coming in to the right, we've got a a beautiful tower that has our church sign on it. It says, College Church, proclaiming the gospel. Now, if you were to come, notice that sign, and then proceed to stay outside marveling at the beautiful structure that displays the sign, admiring the, the ornate stonework, the white windows and towering steeple, perhaps esteeming in your mind the designers and builders of it, and you never come inside, you have missed the point of the sign. The sign points to the reality of the good news, the gospel, That's proclaimed inside, here. News you need to hear. The sign itself is not the news. It points to where you can hear the news. To see the sign but never come inside is to not really see the sign. Sure, you you saw it in one sense. You, You might even be able to describe it perfectly for an assignment in an art history class but in a more fundamental sense. 
you did not see it. And that's what's going on in our text this morning. And I belabor the point because I don't want you, don't want us to so fixate on the sign, the miraculous feeding of thousands of people from a mere five loaves and two fish. That's a glorious sign. But I don't want us to so fixate on that that we miss the glory to which it points. That's what happened with the crowds. According to verse 14, they saw the sign. We saw that a second ago. But look at verse 26. Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs. What? I thought they saw the sign. And Jesus says, You're seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. In other words, they didn't properly see the sign. They just wanted their bellies filled. They saw, but they didn't see. They're fixated on what is natural, on what is observable with the eyeballs in our heads, completely missing what is there to be seen through the signs with what the Apostle Paul calls the eyes of the heart. And so my prayer all week in preparation, my prayer right now as I'm preaching, is that we would not be like the crowds seeing, yet not seeing, but that with the Lord's help, we would truly see this sign. And now we've already providentially been prepared this morning for thinking about signs and how they work, haven't we? We just celebrated communion a few moments ago. The whole thing is one glorious sign of Jesus' atoning death on behalf of sinners with the individual elements themselves also functioning as signs. You got the bread. This is my body which is given for you. You have the cup. This cup is, that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. In other words, the bread is a sign. Signifies Jesus' body broken for us. The cup is a sign. It signifies Jesus' blood shed for us and the purchasing of all the blessings of the new covenant, not least of which is the forgiveness of sins. And together they signify Jesus' atoning death for all who would trust him, who would believe in him, who gladly receive him. The bread and the cup don't exist for themselves, right? Bread is bread. A cup is a cup. But as signs, the meaning of the bread and the cup is so much more, infinitely more. And I will argue, so it is with the bread in this particular sign, the feeding of the 5,000. Well, I've titled this sermon, The Feeding of the 5,000 and the Feast of Faith. The first part of that title corresponds to the sign itself. Quite obviously. The second part, the feast of faith, corresponds to that which the sign signifies. And that's my phrase, the feast of faith. Before looking at each one of those in more detail, the feeding and the feast, we need to keep before our minds, it would do us well to keep before our minds the overall purpose for all the signs that John records in this gospel. See, he says near the end of the book, chapter 20, the end, 
Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So don't, don't miss this right, right here. Don't miss the fact that the feeding of the 5,000 is not just a randomly selected, cool, spectacular story that exists for its own sake. It's in the Bible, John says, so that you, believer and unbeliever alike, it's here so that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ and that in believing you would have life in him. That much is clear. But the aim of this sermon is a bit more precise even than that. Namely, I'm, I'm asking how this particular sign, the feeding of the 5,000, helps to clarify the nature of believing, the nature of faith, and the nature of life. What does it mean in this gospel to believe? What kind of life is John talking about? How does the sign lead us there? That's where we're going. But first, let's Revisit the sign and get that clear in our minds first. Picking it up back at the beginning, verse 1. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias, and a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. And now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. We'll come back to that parenthetical comment about the time being Passover in just a moment. But the first thing to notice here is that the crowd has now followed him from Jerusalem, which is where he was in the previous chapter, to the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee in order to see what he will do next. They're intrigued. They're coming along. What's he going to do next? Previously, he had just healed an invalid that had been so for 38 years just by saying, get up. You'd be intrigued too if you saw that. You'd be like, where's he going? I'm, I want to see what's next. So they followed him now from Jerusalem to this other side of the Sea of Galilee. Verse 5, lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. A denarii, basically a day's wage for a laborer, so 200 days worth of wages, not enough to get bread, just a little bread for everyone. So one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, what are, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. There was much grass in the place, and so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Now, the amazing thing here is that Jesus is not reactive. He's not caught off guard, like, oh, look at all these people. We've got to figure out how we're going to feed them all. I didn't plan on this. That's not what's going on. Look at verse 6 again says he knew what he would do. <laughs> He's in total control of this moment. 
which means that the dialogue back and forth between Jesus and Philip and Andrew is not for Jesus. It's for them. It's designed by Jesus. He even says, John says, as a test for them to see if they would, in fact, realize who they're with, that, that this thing, this is not an issue for Jesus. I wonder, if you were there, if I was there, what, what would we have said? How would we have responded? Well, in any case, Jesus takes the initiative gracefully, yet authoritatively, as he always does. Look at verse 11. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, and so also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. So there's the miracle right there. Five loaves, two fish, multiplied supernaturally to feed thousands of people in an instant. That's, that's the miracle. And, and not just a little bread for the people. When they had eaten their fill, it says, they had all they wanted and more. There was enough left over to fill 12 baskets, big baskets. And surely... Knowing John, this is symbolic, 12 baskets. Perhaps of the 12 tribes of Israel or the 12 disciples or maybe even both. The point, in any case, being that Jesus will satisfy his people into the future as well. 12 baskets left over for later. He continues to satisfy And how do the people respond? Verse 14. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Hmm. That's strange. What is going on here? The people, they see the sign in this sense. They see it and they recognize the supernatural power of Jesus. And they then deduce that he must, in fact, be the prophet to come foretold in the Old Testament. But, according to verse 15, Jesus sees right through their understanding of this prophet king to come. He sees right through it. He's not denying that he, in fact, is that prophet to come, just rejecting their conception of what he, as that prophet king, is supposed to be and do when he comes. Therefore, he got out of there and went away by himself. What were they thinking? What, in their minds, what the prophet to come prophet king to come. What are they thinking? Well, something like this. They're, they're thinking that he's the one who's going to come and destroy the Romans. They're enemies. They're a subjugated people. The prophet to come, the king to come is going to get rid of the enemies. He's going to restore Jerusalem. He's going to institute a, a righteous 
rule that will make my life now a whole lot easier. Jesus had other plans, at least for his first coming. Make no mistake, he is going to come again, and it will be a conquering coming. It will be a victorious coming. He will conquer all his enemies. He will restore not just Jerusalem, but all of creation, and he will institute his righteous rule, bringing perfect peace. Yes, he will, but that is not what he came to do first. He came first to give his life as a ransom for the many, Mark 10, 45. He came first to be the sacrificial lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, John 1, 29. And I said a moment ago we'd come back to John's parathetical comment in verse 4 that it was Passover time. John doesn't want us to miss the significance of this. That's why he puts it in here. But why? On Exodus 12, 13, the Lord says, The blood of the Passover shall be a sign for you. Blood of the Passover, a sign. Blood of, of what? Blood from what? Spotless lambs to be killed at twilight. Okay, so the blood of lambs as a sign. A sign of what? He goes on, the Lord does. When I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. In other words, the blood of the spotless lambs sprinkled on the doorposts was a sign of protection and safety in the midst of the Lord's judgment. It was a sign of salvation. The blood of the lambs provided their salvation. Salvation through substitution. And as a result, they worshipped. And so do we. The glorious gospel of salvation through substitution. And we worship. Well, the Passover is also called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Bread. It was an annual festival prescribed for Israel in which they would eat unleavened bread for seven days as a reminder of the time when they ate the initial Passover in Egypt on the cusp of their rescue out of Egypt. It was so significant that it began their calendar year. It was to be celebrated in the first month. And it was also intended to teach the next generation. In other words, it functioned as a sign. It signified the Lord's protection, his salvation of his people in the midst of his judgment. It was a sign, salvation through substitution. Well, no wonder communion, the Lord's table, as it's recorded for us in the other Gospels, was also instituted at the time of Passover. No wonder. Jesus came first to be the sacrificial lamb of God. He came first to give his body for us and to shed his blood for us so that for any who would have him, 
who would believe in him, their sins would be forgiven. They would have new life, yes, new life now, and also the promise of never-ending, unimaginably glorious life in his new creation. That's why he came first. And the people didn't get it. They didn't see the sign rightly. What about you this morning? Have you received Jesus? Do you believe in him? Do you trust him? Do you treasure him? Well, with that string of questions, we come to the second part of the sermon, this, the feast of faith. We've seen the feeding of the 5,000. We've looked at the miracle, the feast of faith. We're pressing into the question now of the nature of saving faith and of life. What do I mean by this phrase, the feast of faith? The phrase is ambiguous because that little word of is ambiguous. It could mean feasting on faith or faith of the substance that is eaten. It could mean faithful feasting in contrast to unfaithful feasting, describing the kind of feasting. It could mean the feast that grows out of faith, understanding faith as the source out of which the feasting grows. In any of those cases, feasting is distinguished from faith. There's another option, and it's, it's what I mean by the phrase, the feast of faith, namely the feast that is faith. The feast that is faith. In other words, faith, I think, is being described as feasting, to believe to have faith is to feast. Where do I get this from? That's a good question. It's a good question you should ask your preachers. Preacher, where did you get that idea from? Well, let's look at verse 35. You test and see if what I'm seeing is here. Verse 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Notice the parallel between coming and believing. Whoever comes to Jesus as bread, that is, whoever feasts on the true bread, shall not hunger, and then whoever believes in me shall never thirst. It seems to me that the coming is the believing, and the believing is the coming. Jesus is the bread of life. You ever asked yourself what it means to believe in bread? Believe in bread. That's strange. It means to take it and eat it. It means to do with bread what you're supposed to do with bread. Feast. To believe intellectually just as a fact that Jesus is the bread of life without coming to him and to be satisfied by him and to eat, that's not saving faith. The demons believe that Jesus is the bread of life in that sense. It does us no good. No, to believe in him in a saving way is to come to him as bread and eat and to go on eating. You're filled. There's plenty of leftovers. The bread does not run out. And that's the point of the sign. It's meant to point beyond itself, 
beyond natural bread, even natural bread supernaturally supplied. It's meant to point beyond itself to the true bread that alone can ultimately satisfy our deepest hunger. Notice verse 27. Do not work for the food that perishes, Jesus says. Well, natural bread is good. I like bread. Some of you don't eat bread. That's okay. I think you can still track with me. Natural bread is good, but it's temporary. It doesn't last. Rather, verse 27, second part, verse, work for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. And Son of Man is Jesus' favorite way of referring to himself. It's not another person. Jesus isn't talking about another person besides himself. They're the same. Therefore, being given this eternal bread by the Son of Man, (coughs) excuse me, is the same as being given Jesus himself, for he is the bread. It's the bread of life. He gives himself. He came, died, and rose again, not primarily to give you bread, but to be your bread. So take him. Feast on him. That is, believe in him. Don't be like the crowds who sought him because they ate their fill of the loaves. See, they weren't really satisfied with Jesus, just with his gifts. They just want his products, not his person. They like Jesus because he is exceedingly useful. He gives me what I already want. That's not saving faith. There's no regeneration needed for that. You don't need to be born again to have those taste buds. That's not the true gospel. Where Jesus is merely used, he is not honored. And saving faith is designed to honor, to glorify Jesus. He's not a means to some other end. He is the end. That's what all of chapter 6 is about. The sign, the feeding of the 5,000 exists to point to him. He temporarily fed thousands with natural bread in order to signify the greater reality of eternally feeding many thousands with himself, the true bread. And so Jesus is saying to you this morning, to anyone in the hearing of my voice, those online as well, he's saying to you this morning, I'm offering bread to you to satisfy your deepest hunger. I'm offering myself to you. Take, take, eat, and be satisfied. Believe. That's why I came. That's why I died. Well, perhaps if you're uh, one of those real observant types, You've been wondering about the scene that John inserts between the sign and Jesus' explanation of it. Jesus walking on the water. I haven't said anything about it thus far, yet here it is in our text. For many of us, it's a familiar scene, Jesus walking on the water, but it kind of seems to come out of nowhere and seems to be a bit out of place. It's never commented on again in the rest of the gospel. So why did John put it here? Well, there are likely multiple valid reasons, but I think 
One important reason is that he wants to underline the fact that Jesus himself is the point of the signs, that he is and always will be in any and every season of life, storms and all, he will be enough. If we have him and lose everything, we're good. He himself is our satisfaction. We're glad to have him even if we have nothing else. That's the kind of believing Jesus is after, and I think that's why this story is here. Here's why. Notice that Jesus' presence is emphasized in this version of the story rather than his power. No doubt, he's powerful. That's there implicitly. But other gospels draw this out explicitly when they record the calming of the storm and the fact that the sea listens to his voice. But here there is no mention of any of that. No mention of Jesus' rebuke to the sea, no calming of the storm, just Jesus and joy. They were glad to take him in the boat. To have Jesus is to be glad, to have Jesus is enough. When the criticism comes, When cancer comes, when loss comes, when the end comes, to have Jesus is enough. To have him is to be glad. We want Jesus in our boat. We're glad to take him in the boat. It's a faith that feasts on the beauty and the glory of Jesus and all he is for you. It's the only feast that truly satisfies And so let me close with this. In the final book of the Harry Potter series, there's a scene where Harry visits the grave of his parents for the first time, along with his friend, Hermione. Lily and James Potter were murdered by Voldemort when Harry was a baby. On their tombstone is inscribed their names, their dates, and perhaps surprisingly, this quotation from the Bible. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. 1 Corinthians 15, 26. Now, quoting directly from the book now, Harry read the words slowly as though he would have only one chance to take in their meaning, and he read the last of them aloud. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. And a horrible thought came to him, and with it a kind of panic. Isn't that a Death Eater idea? Death Eaters are these uh, evil magicians and stuff. They work for Voldemort. Anyways, in the context of the, the whole story, these are bad beings. Isn't that a Death Eater idea? Harry asks, why is that there? It doesn't mean defeating death in the way the Death Eaters mean it, Harry said Hermione in her gentle voice. It means, you know, living beyond death. Life after death. And that's what eating the true bread brings. That's what Jesus gives. Life. Yes, now, but life even after death. It's the climax of our feast of faith. Jesus says in verse 58... Later on in chapter 6, referring to himself, this is the bread that came down from heaven. 
Not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread, feeds on me, will live forever. There's bread, and then there's bread. The sign and that which it signifies, the feeding of the 5,000 and the feast of faith. So may we feast and be satisfied in Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, that's our prayer. You came not primarily to give us bread, but to be our bread. You alone satisfy. So Lord, may we come to you and eat and know true satisfaction and the hope of everlasting life with you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.